There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, there you are. Yes. Yes. Last week, we talked about the impact of the U.S. midterm elections on global stock markets, well, at least the U.S. stock markets. Now, some would say, why do we focus on the U.S. markets when we talk about global stock markets? What would your answer be? Well, they make up about 58%, almost 60% of the global stock market capitalization. So it's obviously the biggest influencer. Yes. Yet we have so many Canadians that focus on the Canadian markets, which make up less than 3%. Right, right on. So, yep. But it was an interesting discussion and it points out the agnostic behavior of the market to who's actually in power, like who is the president, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yes. So today we're taking a different direction. We're not going to talk about the stock or bond markets, but I'm sure it'll be an interesting discussion nonetheless. We're pleased to have join us somebody by the name of Samantha Postman. Now, Samantha is a serial entrepreneur and global speaker. I find that word entrepreneur hard to, hard to say, by the way. I'll work on it. Yeah, but global speaker. She's been named a top 100 global thought leader, a top 40 outstanding and inspiring community leader, a top 22 world expert in live social audio. That's a lot of top lists, by the way. Exactly. She's the founder <laughs> yeah. and CEO of Smart Arrow Inc., and recently, she submitted a formal strategic proposal to the Canadian Federal Finance Senate Committee on how to re-stimulate the economy after COVID-19. We're going to talk about that for sure. For sure. So with that, Samantha, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. Well, listen, let's kick off, Samantha, and maybe just tell us your story. Like, where are you joining us from today? And how did you end up where you are today? Oh my, that's quite the story. Like, everyone has a story like that. So I'm from the Lethbridge area. I was born in Lethbridge, Alberta. And some local girl, I was born of maker means, actually. So I started out, I was born to a teen mom, definitely not the quiet girl. It was definitely the rebel girl next door. And, you know, we lived on welfare most of our life. I definitely did not have any social advantages that other people had. Sometimes I tell people I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. So in Lethbridge, we have kind of at the time a poor side. Now there's a development, so it's not really like that anymore. But when I was growing up, definitely I was the wrong side of the tracks. So yeah, I didn't have the kind of networking or business training that my own kids get that I now I'm a, a managing partner of a farm, a commercial farm. So I had to like figure it out on my own. So Luckily, I was blessed with the really good attitude, I think. And I'm very, I'm going to use the word versatile. So I'm very versatile. So I have the ability to adapt very quickly and be very versatile. And that's really important to overcome any adversity, actually. So whenever I come to a situation, I'm always looking for alternate ways to accomplish getting to the finish line. So that's kind of been my attitude. And so, yeah, I definitely, I mean, people see the the polished swan, I'm going to say now, I'm wearing white today, you know, but I definitely was the ugly duckling. I, you know, had no friend. I had one friend all the way through elementary, only one. And all the other girls would pick on me and bully me. And 
my family life was terrible. There was a lot of really, really hard stuff going on. By the time I was 14, my mom was married for the third time. And the man who raised me died in a big, huge car pile up just before Christmas when I was 10 years old. And my mom didn't even marry him. So like, I'm being really light about it. But you can just imagine the change that's constantly happening in my home when a new man would come in with different rules and different ways of thinking. And you have to you have to adapt the way, like even though we're all using English, we all use different language and behavioral expectations. And so I think that really set me up for success. Some people would crush under that. For me, it set me up success because I was, it's very easy for me to adapt to others. And usually when I'm around people, I'll say, you don't need to adapt for me. Don't change your language for me. Don't change who you are. You just be you and I can adjust to you. Like, I just want to get you. And I learn way more about people when you don't ask them to adapt for you. You just learn so much. So I'm a super learner. I love learning. <laughs> I've taken so many courses. And I just like literally, if I was could be in a classroom the day I die, I'd be like happier than a lark. So now I do a lot of teaching. So that's a, a little bit of a story without going into all the deep stuff. If you want to know a little bit more, I do have a podcast where I talk about some of it. And before I finishing talk about my child a little bit, I have a half sister who died of a drug overdose not that many years ago. And how I say it to people is like, where I come from, you either end up dead or dead inside. There's no in between. So my sister didn't make it out. It's extremely emotionally tough to have those disadvantages when you're young. And I get that it's Western poverty, which isn't the same as what you see in a developing country, which I have lived in developing countries. It's different, but it's still poverty to us. So there's an emotional poverty. It's not always about money. But here's the thing. I found out very young that school was easy for me. And so I realized very young that that was my ticket out. <laughs> like, I don't know how I did it. It's not like the kind of home my mom hadn't even finished high school. I wasn't around any like academics or big business people, nothing. I ran lemonade stands. I did newspapers. I delivered things. I started working at McDonald's when I was 15 years old. I think it was 15 back then when you could get working for like three bucks an hour or, you know, something. I worked at McDonald's for four years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Who does that? I actually loved it. I learned so much. I thought it was great fun. Got me through university, got a scholarship through them. But that there was no jobs. I had no networking. But the thing is that four years told my next employer that I had grit, told them I had perseverance, told them I was willing to work at McDonald's of all places for that long. And then I built on that. But yeah, I knew I was good at school. And so I used that, knew I was going to go to university. So yeah, got my Bachelor of Management from the University of Lethbridge. And I actually did a master's a couple of years ago through online studies before everyone was doing it, actually. <laughs> I graduated in 2016, which is four years before COVID hit. So yeah, that's kind of it. We'll talk a bit more about the other things. You know, I guess if you want to talk about like my accomplishments now, Colin started out with them. So I feel like I talked enough already. So I got it done. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I mean, it's obviously an interesting story that you have, an interesting life story. And I'm sure that all of those events that you grew up with, I'm sure they've made you the person you are today, just like we all have to adapt to our surroundings, right? But do you actually view some of those things as almost like, it's going to sound weird, but like a blessing to take you to where you are today or a curse? Well, to be honest, I believe that almost all blessings can be curses. Almost everything is a double-edged sword. You know, in one place it slices well, in the other it doesn't. Just like marriage, right? The thing we love about our spouse is the thing we don't like about them often. And so I think our life tragedies, I would say that I had more than 
Yeah. So when I was 35 years old, I was like on top of the world running a tax practice. I'm a tax expert by first trade. That was my main my main career, I guess, other than my husband and I run a farm. So I guess that's the main, main-ish career. But I, at 35, literally within months, just went from superwoman to completely nothing. Like I was like in a wheelchair. I couldn't, I couldn't cut my own food. I couldn't talk. Like I had to lose my tax practice. Even now, physically, I'm quite challenged. My doctors told me I was never going to get better. And the Canadian government actually sent me to the Mayo Clinic. Like who, like that's serious. Took a year and a half, but they finally sent me to the Mayo Clinic. And so that's a whole story in itself, which I think we don't have the time for. However, what came out of that is that your trauma from your childhood will catch up to you. So even though I was thriving and like conquering the world and conquering all the mountains, every mountain that came to me, I was like conquering it, hitting to the top. Eventually, my body had to process. So there's a book out called The Body Keeps Score. So I do think that like the more adverse childhood experiences, the harder it is very, very few people who have that kind of child that I have come out where I did. It took me six years to get my brain back. Six years. So I was down for six years. And even now I still struggle with some stuff. So so I wouldn't I wouldn't wish it. I do think adversity is good, but too much adversity can be bad. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. You've done so many interesting things and there's kind of a, a wide range. So let's get to the the practical kind of left brain type stuff. You spent 20 years in tax. And Colin had mentioned in the introduction that you had submitted a strategic proposal to the Finance Senate Committee to help stimulate the economy. Tell us about that. Yeah. So (laughs) I did about 7,500 tax returns in 20 years when I ran my practice. First, I worked for a company and then I ran my own practice. And I learned a lot about human behavior I learned a lot about, I mean, finances, and you guys all know that, right? Like finances is the most intimate you can be with someone. Even spouses don't always tell each other finance. So as an accountant or tax, like once you see their full financial picture, and then with tax, I also saw their medical on top of that. It's so intimate. And so people just really shared their journeys, regrets, successes. And I really got to see how human behavior, how people are about human behavior. So what I did is I took that knowledge and created what I think would really help nonprofit organizations. So during COVID, I mean, we all saw it was happening to nonprofits. I mean, they just the needs and demand on a nonprofit was just skyrocketing and their income was down because because of COVID. The main gist of it is this. I would like to make a democracy out of of basically donations. So what happens, I'll give you the premise. So the idea is that all, it's basically a charitable refundable. So right now, if you make a charitable donation, it's non-refundable. So it only helps you if your income's high enough to use it. However, my proposal is to actually make all charitable donations refundable, thereby the citizens are deciding where the money goes, and then the government is sharing in that. So my proposal is 50-50. So for every every dollar that doesn't matter if you're a single mom or a student, every dollar they put towards a nonprofit organization, they get 50% back on their tax return. So what would happen is, of course, the government would have to reduce the amount of where they choose where the budget goes. So it'd be a moving around the budget. But what's cool about this is what's happening is with nonprofit organizations is their donor base is going down. So we need to re-stimulate that. So the idea behind it is that we have this like stagnant income from all these retired people who are sitting on millions, some of them, a lot of them have very low taxable income because, you know, all of it's been taxed. But if they could get 50% of it back... Well, they would take this stagnant income that's sitting in savings and bring it into the economy, thereby creating a multiplier effect, which would actually stimulate the economy because this is the human behavior that I'm operating on. 
people spend refunds. It's a crazy phenomenon. You know, like it's free money. It's like I have this analogy. If you if you go and read the proposal, I use the monopoly. When you pass go and you get cash, it's like they have to spend it, even though it was theirs to begin with. And so really what the government would be doing is taking the money they have, giving it to people. It feels like free money. So they spend it. So that spending is what's going to re-stimulate the economy and get and get our, our gross domestic product back up. So that whole idea is this. So here's what my proposal is. Put it on the bottom line, because when you put refunds near the bottom where it says refund, people see it. It can't be buried in the tax return somewhere. It's got to be at the very bottom. And so that's my proposal. So then students, seniors, it doesn't matter. There's no discrimination because right now charitable donations is discriminated. Actually, you have to be a high income. And generally speaking, only males in the higher income get to use the charitable donation. It's not. It was created when only a male filed a tax return for the entire household. It's not created for the way we file taxes now. And then the other thing too is then we don't need this five-year rule. So right now, charitable donations, you could, you have up to five years to deduct them. However, under this, you would just get the refund. But here's what's happening to citizens. Emails are a gong show. Like almost all the charitable donation receipts are happening in emails. So, you know, five years from now, it's in my ex-husband's or my old boyfriend's or my old job's email that I don't even have anymore. I don't remember what I had five years ago. So that would actually give people the refund right away. Governments don't like it. I wrote a letter to the CFIB because I've been trying to get the CFIB, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, behind it. And I explained to them like pros and cons, right? Because it's going to cost the government money if they have to give you the refund now instead of in five years from now. And they like it if you don't remember about charitable donations, of course. (laughs) However, we get to basically choose where the money goes locally. And to be honest, I think it's four to one. There's a study... There's a nonpartisan group out of Edmonton, I think, that did a study. I think it's like four to one. Nonprofit organizations use the money better four to one than a government or a social organization. They're able to meet the needs. So that was kind of my long way around it. But it got really far. I had like the provincial... It literally was hand-delivered to the provincial finance minister. You need to read this. So it got really far. But yeah, it kind of stopped when the federal finance minister got let go and it didn't pick up steam since. I guess the liberals... I don't really care which political party picks it up. I just want it to be for citizens. I just think it would really help socially, but also economically for Canada. Actually, any country could implement it. Sure. Was that even Morneau? Yeah. So I... I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, That's when it happened. It literally was hitting major steam right before I was supposed to be getting in. What I was going to do is try to get the provincial finance ministers to strong arm the federal finance minister. But every provincial government could do it. It's the ones that have like separate ones like we do. So in Alberta, we could implement it and the federal doesn't have to because we have our own we have our own tax mechanism. So you could still stimulate in Alberta. But anyway, if you want to read it, it's actually logged in the, the Senate committee's log. But yeah, they didn't pick it up, but it got really far. Like I was telling you guys earlier, the president of Imagine Canada was phoning me and saying this just got on our table to talk tomorrow morning. So it was like, it was crazy. (laughs) Well, that's fascinating. And a good idea is a good idea, regardless of who's in power. So hopefully that will find its way. Well, even the Simon Fraser Institute offered to help me with doing the financials behind it. But then when the finance minister changed, I mean, that's been a while now. They were just like, we're too busy now. We can't help you. But that says something of the merit that they were willing to put their own resources behind helping come up with the numbers for it, like how it would affect the budgets. Sure. 
Well, that that's fascinating. And I hope it comes back one day because it's a great idea. But it also kind of speaks to when you talk about democratizing the whole process. One of the things that I know that you speak about a lot, and actually we had a speaker on this podcast just a few weeks ago talking about her role as a financial advisor was really focusing on helping women, both divorcees and widows or recent widows and recent divorcees to deal with financial situations that they're often left in when their husband passes away or they go through a divorce and and they're unaware of their financial situation. And can you maybe talk a little bit about that? You know, some of the some of the disparities right now between women and men when it comes to finances and what what should people be doing? How do they how do we get over this disparity? Yeah, that's a really great one. Like I was saying to you earlier, I'm definitely not one of those like feminist types where I'm just constantly like women's rights, women's rights. I think it's about human rights. And what is good for women is also good for men. And so what I would see a lot of, and this actually happened even to my mom, so it's definitely close to my heart, is my dad died at at 70 and my mom's 60. And so I'm just going to use their scenario because it's a little bit easier. So my dad is 10 years older than my mom. But just so all of you know, like the life expectancy of a female is 5.4 years longer than a male. And so men actually are married. I think 74% of men are married until death. And for women, it's in the 40%. So what happens is women are living in poverty because they're living on one income, but their expenses aren't half. So if they're living in their home, they have to cover the expense of the entire half. And then if he happens to have a pension, she's getting about 60% if he happens to luckily have one. So they're not living on the full income and on a half. So the other thing too is she's not able to leverage non-refundable tax credits that you would see by by splitting it. Whereas a, a man gets both non-refundable tax credits because he can claim his wife's or you use them. He's got more income. And then the other thing is quality of life because he's got someone to care for him. So generally, he's older. It's changing now with the younger generation. But generally, he's got someone to care for him for free, built in. Whereas a female does not have that. So she may have to pay someone to clean the walks, to take care of her home or to like take care of her physically, especially after she spent her later years taking care of her husband and made to be depleted after he's gone. So it's important for men to realize that they need to take care of their wives. And I know that sounds old fashioned, but I don't really care. It's just it's fact. Men need to think about taking care of their wives after they're gone. And a lot of financial planners, and I've seen it because I've worked with financial planners, they're like, you know, let's take your average life expectancy and do your planning, but they're actually not spending a lot of time about what happens if your wife lives longer than you. <laughs> we need to financially plan an extra 10, 15 years past your lifespan, not just to your lifespan. So that's a different financial plan. So I would like to see more financial literacy for women. We're seeing more of it now, but even still, one will take the lead and the other doesn't. Both partners need to take responsibility of understanding what's going on financially. Life insurance is very important, especially if there's a big age gap between you and your partner. It's very important that the older one definitely should have life insurance. And I promise you that like when you retire at 65, if you've worked for like a union, sometimes they offer you to be able to keep on your life insurance policies or you can go. But it's cheaper for you to pay your life insurance for another 10 years than for your wife to not have enough income to live for 10 years after. Like what you'd be paying in premiums is practically nothing compared to what the payout would be. So just like keeping in mind that there is a disparity. So two out of three women live in poverty in their senior years. Like, no joke. In our, (laughs) two out of three women. So your mom, your sister, your wife is living in poverty when you're gone. Like, 
that's what we need to think about. So I did write some articles on it. I don't know if you guys want to link it later, but it's up to you. I wrote a couple articles about it on Twitter some years ago. And I mean, some people really found it very helpful. So if you're interested, be more than willing to share them. We'll put them in the show notes for sure. That is interesting. For me, I'm in a situation where I'm two years older than my wife, which tends to be kind of normal. I don't know why that is, right? But the people I'm around, it seems to be fairly common. And as you point out, she has a longer life expectancy just based on the numbers. So that seems kind of crazy that, you know, you marry somebody, I'm two years older and she's going to live longer. So there's your 10 so that's, years. That's potentially, right? if you take the averages, she could be, it's seven years that she's going to live widowed because it's the two that you're older plus the five that she lives longer than you. So, you know, seven to eight years, if you were to use that averages, that she needs to be taken care of past when you're gone. And if she wants to live in that home, in your home and entertain your your family, well, that home is a cost. Like it's not half the expenses. And she may not be able to shovel the walks. Like we live in Canada, you know, <laughs> like, you know, things like that. And that's what I would experience. I would see these widows. And the thing is, they won't tell their kids. They don't want to tell them that dad didn't take care of them. They don't want to tell them that they're living in poverty. They, they'll like, oh, it's very sad. I saw my heart would just break. And one little piece of advice while I have the floor, please, anyone who's listening, do not lend or give your irresponsible child a ton of money and bail them out. Because then when you're older and you're in trouble and you don't have the money, it's gone. Like that twenty, thirty thousand dollars could be all the difference between whether you make groceries that month. So I saw that happen all the time, bailing out the irresponsible child and then not having enough for retirement. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's a good point. And when I was growing up, that didn't happen a lot, but I think times have changed now and we do see a lot of people bailing out, you know, helping is one thing, bailing is another. All of us had to learn when we were a young age, you possibly more than others even, but we all had to learn that, okay, you you need to find a way to get by on your own. You need to take responsibility for your actions. And, you know, these actions have consequences and you're not going to, as you say, threaten the parents' comfortable retirement because of your actions. So it's good learning, I think, probably for, for younger people as well. If you had the opportunity to talk to your younger self, what would you say? Yeah, I get asked this one a lot. It's very popular. So I run social audio rooms on Twitter mostly. Hundreds of people a week listen in on them. Sort of like a live podcast for anyone who doesn't know what those are. It's a popular question that I like to ask people when I get asked. So my husband and I run a commercial crop farm in Southern Alberta. And we have a pretty large acreage. I've been growing these apple trees for quite a few years. And I've learned a lot about apple trees. So that's what I'd like to leave people with, with like a metaphor, I guess, of living. So when you grow a fruit tree of any kind, and I'm going to use apple trees because it's a little easier. When you grow an apple tree, there are components of your apple tree. So for any of you who don't know this, an apple tree is actually grafted onto another root. So usually like a flowering crab which will make it produce four years faster. So there's a lot you can learn from an apple tree. And I wish I would have learned this analogy when I was really young, because there's a lot of life learning from an apple tree. So when you graft onto an existing root, it's sort of like being mentored. Like you're, you're literally standing on the shoulder of a giant, you know, already grafted, and you get four years, you get an extra four years fast track on it. So you can produce much faster, four years faster. So we've got this grafting. So no person is a standalone person. Even an apple tree is a combination of well, two trees. <laughs> so there's that analogy. So here's the thing with apple trees that I find very fascinating. So apple trees thrive the best. So what you want with an apple tree is you want it to thrive so it produces really good fruit big, juicy, healthy fruit. Well, we want to be producing really good, healthy fruit. That's our goal. 
That should be our whole goal in life. Produce good, healthy fruit. Well, you need a healthy tree. You need to focus on the tree. You're not going to get fruit. Everybody wants good fruit, but they're not focusing on the tree. You are the tree. Your life is the tree. So what I would tell myself is these, be careful and be very conscious about your surroundings. So when an apple tree has suckers at the bottom, this is easy. It's the first thing you want to do because those suckers actually draw a lot of nutrients. They take nutrients and water and a lot of energy from the tree. So the first thing you want to do is cut off any suckers. So a sucker, some people right away think, oh, toxic people. I really hate that term. People don't try to be toxic. They're just overwhelmed with their emotions and it spills everywhere. But you want to cut out that you need to cut out the people or the activities. It could be Netflix. It could be bad habits that you have, alcoholism. There's a lot of things that are sucking energy from your body. It's just not people. So be conscious of what's sucking energy from you and taking away from your tree. The other thing too is this is the trickiest part of an apple tree. So an apple tree has two different kinds of branches. The U-shaped ones, like, you know, it's like a, you know, when you're at Christmas or Thanksgiving and we hold the wishbone, well, the strongest wishbones have a U-shape to them. It's a stronger bond than the ones that have like a perpendicular or 90 degrees. Those break very quickly. So on an apple tree, you have what are called water shoots. They look like regular branches, but they're like more like 90 degrees. So they're hidden in the tree. Well, those are the hard ones. And it's hard to cut out a water shoot because they look like good branches, but they don't produce well. And they actually take more nutrients from the tree than than they're supposed to. So you have to learn to look at people, things that you're doing in your life, activities, pursuits, passions, partners, relationships, and say, what's a water shoot? Looks healthy, but isn't for me. And what is healthy? And you need to remove or prune out the water shoots and the suckers. And then you're left with the good branches. You need to take good care of your tree, fertilization, regular pruning, and just making sure that there's air. So an apple tree needs quite a bit of airflow and sun in order to make sure that the apples are nice nice and tasty and well. And the other thing too is you need to make sure that they're not infested. Obviously, if the tree has a disease or insects, you need to make sure you take care of those so that the apples are good. So I love that analogy. And it really helps me when I go through life because I, I approach people or an activity or a thing and I'm like, okay, where where is this on my apple tree? <laughs> is this going to help me produce good fruit? And then I can make really good decisions about how I live my life and what I include or not include in my life. Hmm. Oh, that's a great analogy. You're never going to look at an apple tree the, the <laughs> same again, are you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the suckers that I'm surrounded by, right? <laughs> Got to get rid of those things, as you say, to live a healthier life. I like to use the word prune because rid is like, if you're the person who's getting rid of or toxic that's getting cut out, it's very negative. And I try not to think of other people in a negative sense. So I just, I just like to value people's human life. Honestly, I'm not joking. People are not trying to be toxic. They're just overwhelmed with their emotions. Right. But that doesn't mean that you have to be around them all the time. That's right. <laughs> What's that children's book that's about the tree, the man in the tree? Do you know what I'm talking mm. about? He like plants the tree as a little boy. The giving tree. The giving tree. Yep. Ah, I have to yeah, put Shel that Shel That, that is a really good story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'll appreciate that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Look it up. To... The giving tree, Shel Silverstein. Yeah. I think actually oh, it I became actually a movie. I actually was going to create a little program with this. Like one of these days, it's, it's partially, it's about 25% done where I put people through and they go through like a, an apple analogy where every day they go through one of those pieces and then like identify things in their life to add and to take out and that sort of thing. So one of these days, it's on my, it's on my wish list of things to get out for people in a course. Well, listen, you do a lot. And as we talked earlier, you're a multitasker, but what is your relaxation? What do you do for fun? 
when you're not working just to give the tree a break? Honestly, for fun, I love learning. Like, it's funny because my husband, when I used to have my tax practice, he'd go play rec hockey once a week. And he's like, why are you taking another course? And I'm like, you have your hockey and I have my taxes or I have my... He's like, what is... Are you like an insane woman? So I love learning. That's relaxation for me. And I think that I've what I've learned is it's because when I'm living in the present fully, I push out my past. I realize it's a coping mechanism. So I love learning, but I'm using my passion to cope with my past. And it might be why I got through my past when others didn't. Because when you live in your past, you relive it. And your brain doesn't actually, if you relive your past, if you're always doing it, it actually brings it back to the present and your brain doesn't really realize the difference because it's an emotionally responding. So I think that that has actually been really good for me. And side note, actually, the other thing is photography because you push out the world. So I did some professional photography for a while, but then I ended up moving it back to hobby because it just kind of took the joy out. So actually, even one of my photos was going to be picked up by Monopoly. It's a bridge picture, but didn't because Monopoly didn't pick Lethbridge, but... Yeah. So photography would be another one. Cool. Awesome. You obviously read a lot. So what are you reading right now? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm reading this book that I think should be required reading for school. It's called uh, Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. It's an old book in the... Yeah. So I'm reading that. It was based based on a friend of mine. Really big. I I bought it to go to Mexico and I was like, 1,100 pages. (laughs) I think it's like heavy. Is that going to be worth the real estate? Because the tablet gets hot in the sun. But before we go, I just wanted to mention quickly, because we talked a little bit about in the pre-show, about polymathy. So some people don't realize this, that when you have like accomplished at least three disciplines, you become what's called a polymath. So that's, I guess, what people mostly talk about to me now. It's very hard to call yourself a polymath because it sounds kind of, it's not very, it doesn't sound very, like you're like a little pompous, I suppose. But I actually have run a community for polymaths. And so that's, the more disciplines you add, the easier the next one comes because you've got so much that you're, there's a lot of overlap, right? So, and then you also learn super learning techniques. So we kind of joke that we can learn in a hundred what takes some people 10,000 hours. I mean, that's probably a bit of a hyperbole, but it doesn't take us very long to become proficient in something once you keep adding them on. So I wouldn't call myself a multitasker so much, more like a multidisciplined. Like right. I love picking up a new, a new skill. Excellent. Cool. Yep. Right on. Well, I think that's probably our time for today. So Samantha, thank you so much for joining us and and being our guest for today's episode. It was a very interesting discussion. Absolutely. And yeah, we wish you all the best in your polymathy. Polymathy. Absolutely. Uh, Going forward from (laughs) here. Did you even know what a polymath was? A lot of people don't. And also, a lot of polymaths are ADHD. I personally think, and I've talked to psychologists, that some people who have been diagnosed with ADHD are actually polymaths or polymaths in the making. Mm-hmm. You can see it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. Thanks again for being on the show, Samantha. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Of course. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast, to get more realistic insight on investing, or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.